Let's pray. Gracious Father, uh, you say that uh, all scripture is breathed out by you and it's useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness to equip us for every good work. And so we pray uh, that you would do what you promised to do in your word, that you would equip us for obedience to you. We pray that Jesus would be honoured through it. And we pray in his name. Amen. So my observation is uh, that family trees really only have an appeal for men of a certain age and stage of life. Um, My dad started working on our family tree, I guess, about 10 years ago. Um, He talked to the remaining relatives of my grandparents' generation. Uh, He's gone searching for headstones across a couple of different continents He's trawled through births, deaths and marriage records, uh, baptism records, voting enrolments. He's done the the DNA test where you you do the swab and then send it away. And Dad has traced our family tree back to around the the end of the 1500s. And there's some genuinely interesting things, I think, that he's managed to dig up. Uh, Dad reckons we have seven convicts in our family. Uh, That makes us kind of Australian royalty, doesn't it? Thomas Francis came over on the Third Fleet, so make sure you watch your wallet over morning tea. Uh, through the DNA test, he reckons that uh, we can trace our genes back to the Vikings who invaded Ireland. So we've got some Viking, and it's exciting. Now, on my mum's side, I am 1% West African, uh, Benin via Jamaica, apparently, which probably means that we have slaves and slave owners in our family tree. You know, there's some genuinely interesting things that Dad's managed to uh, dig up as he's done this. But the interest for anyone other than my dad dries up pretty quickly when he starts talking about the family tree. There's only so much that you can maintain your attention before eyes start glazing over and your mind kind of moves to other things while you pretend to listen to what he's saying. That's especially the case when the family tree belongs to someone else. And I think most of us feel that way when it comes to the genealogies, the family trees in the Bible. There's all this begetting, uh, names that are very difficult to pronounce, though Dave did a great job. Uh, We've got no idea who most of these people are. You see, when we get to a passage like this, our temptation can be to skip over and just go to the exciting stuff. Now, following this is the Christmas story. Why can't we just skip the genealogy and go straight to the Christmas story? That's the exciting one, isn't it? But I think we would be shortchanging ourselves if that's what we did. You see, if, if we believe that when the Bible says that all of Scripture is God's Word to us, that all of it is God-breathed and useful, then surely that includes passages like this, doesn't it? And so, I'm convinced that if we just slow down a little bit, if we read a passage like this carefully, then this passage is actually an exciting passage and there is gold for us in there. So, how about we do some digging? The gold, I reckon, starts even with the opening words of verse 1. Verse 1 again, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham... 
So in, in Greek, in the language that Matthew wrote this gospel in, the first two words, the words here translated the book of the genealogy, those two words are Greek words that are biblos genesios, which might mean nothing to you, but imagine, if you will, just for a second, that you are a first century Jewish Christian, you're gathered with other believers in that, the house church that you attend with a copy of this brand new Gospel of Matthew in your hands. The ink is still wet, it's that new. And the reader gets up and he unrolls the scroll and he reads those first two words of Matthew's Gospel. Biblos Genesios. And what you hear, because you're someone who's a first century Jewish Christian and you're fluent in Greek, so you understand it, is something like the book of Genesis. That's exciting stuff. That's like the trumpet blast at the start of the Star Wars movies. In those first two words, Matthew is using this phrase that is meant to trigger our minds to flash back to the Bible's opening scenes. In effect, he's saying, hey guys, remember that story of a very good creation, of a garden, of sin, of judgment, how everything went wrong and that's the reason why everything sucks in the world. But do you remember back in that story that God promised somehow he was going to fix it? Remember that story? Well, this is the final chapter in that saga. This is the conclusion to the story of how God is going to renew and restore all things, how he'll undo all the brokenness and pain that sin brings into the world, how he will bring his people back into the Garden of Eden, how he'll live with them in their presence. And so when Matthew begins his Gospel with these two words, Biblos Genesios, the book of Genesis rather than your eyes glazing over, rather than kind of hitting a flat note, what we should think of is kind of an orchestral swell that tells us, now we're getting to the good bit. New creation is breaking in with the arrival of Jesus. That's an exciting start to the Gospel. But it doesn't stop there because the book of the genesis of Jesus isn't the story of just a kind of regular kid born in a small Judean town who ends up making something of himself. This kid has a backstory. And that backstory is essential for us to know if we're going to make sense of what Jesus does through the rest of Matthew's Gospel. You see, along the way to the renewal and the restoration of all things... God's woven in a number of promises about how that would happen. And you can probably guess, if you look at verse 1, those promises are to Abraham and to David. And so, for Jesus to be the one who brings in this new creation, then he's got to be the one who, pro who fulfills the promises to those two men. That's why Matthew starts with a genealogy. In the ancient world, a genealogy is more than just some interesting info about where your family came from. It's not just for historical interest. Uh, for me, my family tree is kind of what Dad got into when his parents started to get old and, uh, and he wanted to kind of find out the family history before it's too late. 
But in the ancient world, your family tree is more like your resume. It shows how significant you are as a person. So it takes a bit of a mind shift for us. In, in the Western world, we don't find our identity in our family tree. We, we find our identity and our significance elsewhere. When someone asks you about yourself, what, what do you tell them? You say what you do for work. Uh, you say maybe who's in your immediate family. You say something like what you'd like to do on the weekends. In the ancient world, though, if someone asked me about myself, then I would say something like, well, I'm Keith, the son of Bruce, the son of Fred. We have very manly Australian names in our family. And so that's what Matthew is doing. Matthew includes this genealogy to show us that Jesus isn't just a regular kid born in a small country town... It's not even that he's kind of some wise teacher who does some impressive miracles. What he wants us to see in that first verse is that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is the true Israelite. That he's the son of David, the true king of Israel. That he's the Messiah who has come to deliver Israel from their exile under God's judgment. He's the son of Abraham. Uh, After that story of Genesis, where the first man and the first woman sin in the Garden of Eden, uh, followed by generations and generations of increasing depravity and rebellion against God, uh, Genesis 12 climaxes with God's promise to this wandering, childless idol worshipper called Abram. And God promises Abram that he's going to take him from his father's land and he will be his God. He promises that he's going to give him a family, that he's going to give him a land for his family to live in and that he'll bless him and through him he'll bless all the families of the earth. God's plan to fix the brokenness of Genesis 3 focuses in on this one man and the family that will come from him. As you read through the the story of Abraham's life in Genesis, God repeats his promise two more times. He, He enters into a covenant with Abraham. A covenant is like a contract between two people. It has mutual obligations and it's a solemn promise that is sealed in blood. God enters into this covenant with Abraham. He Uh, commits himself to Abraham and promises that through his offspring he'll bless the whole world, he'll reverse the curse of sin and judgment. It's the foundational covenant of the Old Testament. And through the Old Testament then we see that progress towards some sort of fulfilment. You fast forward about 800 years and Abraham's family has grown into a massive nation, the nation of Israel, They're in the land that God had promised, the land of Canaan, and they have a king, King David. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes another covenant. This time, he says that from the family of Abraham, through whom he's going to bless the whole world, there will come a king, a king from David's family, a son of David, and this king will rule over God's people forever. His rule will be an eternal rule. 
Unfortunately for Israel, things don't go well for them after David dies. Uh, they, they go downhill pretty quickly, actually. David's offspring, the sons of David, weren't godly leaders. They didn't obey the Lord. Uh, they lead the people into idolatry and the kingdom of Israel splits in two and God judges them for their sin. God judges the northern tribes, Israel, by sending them off to Assyria in 722 BC. Uh, The southern two kingdoms, or the southern two tribes, uh, the kingdom of Israel, they head off to Babylon in uh, 597 BC. And that's what verse 12 and verse 11 and verse 12 in our genealogy are talking about, the deportation to Babylon. The exile is God's judgment on Israel for hundreds of years of sin and rebellion against him. When God exiles them, they aren't his people anymore. They're not in the promised land and they're definitely not blessed anymore. And yet God graciously sends his prophets and he tells the people he hasn't given up on his promises. Because even though they have broken their side of the agreement, they've broken the covenant, he wouldn't break his side of the deal. He's going to bring them back in the land. It will be like a new creation, a new Genesis. Rivers flowing through Eden, God dwelling among them, the nations coming to Israel to be blessed by them. And it would all be brought about by an anointed king. Anointing was what you would do to someone who was specially selected by God to serve him. Uh, You would pour oil on the head of a prophet or a priest or a king And it was the sign that they were set apart by God to serve him. And this coming anointed king, or he's the one that all of the other anointed prophets and priests and kings were pointing to. And the prophets, they said that he would be a son of Abraham. He'd be a true Israelite, the one who would bring the blessing that God had promised. He'd be the son of David, he'd be the true king who would rule with righteousness over God's people forever. He would be the anointed one who brings God's people back from exile and into new creation, new Genesis. That's the hope of the Israelite people. If you're the a first century Jew, if you're a first century Jew reading your Bible, longing for this anointed one to come, the word for anointed that you would be looking for is Messiah or Christ. And so that's why when Matthew starts his gospel by writing, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, then we hear that orchestral music swell. Matthew's shown us Jesus' credentials, his family history that serves as his resume. And as he does it, he tells us, now we're getting to the good bit. God's eternal anointed king has arrived. The new head of Abraham's family, the one who's going to bring God's people into a new restored creation. I think there's a couple of implications from that, actually. Uh, First of all, I think that's a great reason to get to know your Old Testament, isn't it? 
You see, to have a chance of understanding why this passage is as significant as it is, we need to know the Old Testament, that story of creation and covenants and exile and the hope of the Messiah. And then, I think that means that we will start to realise the Old Testament isn't some kind of dry, boring, historical record. It is the living and active record of God working to restore all things. See, when we see that, when we, when we, when we understand God's plan through the Old Testament, then by the time we get to Jesus, we start to see him, not in kind of grainy black and white, we start to see Jesus in full kind of 4K high definition... We see that all those stories that we teach our kids from the Old Testament, they're really threads in this great big tapestry that God is sovereignly weaving together that is a picture of Jesus. That he's in charge, he's bringing all his plans to completion and he's centering them all on Jesus, his son. And doesn't it give you great confidence to know that God is in charge like that? You see, through all that sin and that messiness and that failure of these Old Testament people, God's hand is actually over it all, bringing his plans to fulfilment. Through these names, Matthew's reminding us that we can have hope and faith in God to keep his promises. That same sovereignty that he works over all the details of Israel's history, he works over our lives as well. And so we can trust him. In whatever situation and circumstance you find yourself in, you can trust him. You can trust him when it feels like everything's fallen apart, when your life is a great big mess of sin and conflict and failure. You can trust him when it feels like he's so slow in doing what he said he would do. Because looking at this real history of Jesus' family, of God's chosen people, it's meant to remind us that even if God seems slow to us, he always keeps his promises. We can trust him. That's just the first verse. Uh, We could be here all day, couldn't we? Uh, Looking at all these names, look at every person that Matthew names on this list... Uh, Instead, what we're going to do now, I think, is just get some highlights. Uh, And actually, I'm going to make you guys do some work. You're going to have a little bit of a taste of uh, what we do sometimes on campus in our Bible talks. You'll need your Bibles open for this. Uh, One of the keys uh, to reading a genealogy is looking for the pattern. So, to look for the pattern that Matthew sets and then to see where the pattern is broken. Where the pattern is broken, that's Matthew's hint that he wants us to stop and notice something. So, what's the pattern that Matthew sets up for us? It's pretty simple, isn't it? It's A was the father of B and B was the father of C and C was the father of D. It's a pretty simple pattern. Uh, For two minutes... I want you to work with the people next to you. Uh, Maybe this is a family activity. The kids can do this as well. It's not hard. Uh, Find all of the ways that Matthew interrupts the pattern. Where does he interrupt the pattern? Do that for two minutes.
David the king, yeah, his title gets mentioned, not just his name, yep. Yeah, there's women included in the genealogy, five women, yep. And his brothers, yeah, twice. Twice it says someone's name and his brothers, yep. Anything else? Yeah, the deportation to Babylon. There's a, an historical event included, not just names of people, but an, an historical event. Yep. Yeah, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Probably one more that maybe you didn't pick up. Uh, we have a pattern of 14, but actually in the last bracket between the deportation to Babylon to Jesus, only 13 names. It's, it's interesting. Uh, so good job noticing all of those things. Now that you've noticed them, the question that we need to ask is, why? Why does Matthew interrupt the genealogy of Jesus at those points and in those ways? We'll have a look at just a few of them. And the first variation that we come across is something that we see uh, twice, uh, there in verse 2 and then again in verse 11, when Matthew mentions Judah... He then says, and his brothers. And then down in verse 11, he gets to Jeconiah, and he says the same thing, Jeconiah and his brothers. What's Matthew doing? He's helping us remember that this isn't just a list of individuals. So it's not like my family tree, where I could put up my family tree on the screen and you guys will be very polite uh, and you'll listen, but you don't care because it has nothing to do with you. Matthew is reminding us that this family tree, this genealogy, is a genealogy of national significance. See, Israel is a nation that is made up of 12 tribes that are descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. These brothers and the list of names here are representatives of a whole nation. This is a genealogy of national importance. And the same with Jeconiah. Uh, Jeconiah is the last king mentioned before the exile to Babylon. What does it do when he mentions Jeconiah and his brothers? It points out that when the royal line is lost, so are all the hopes of Israel. This is a family tree that has implications for all of God's people. And it's a family tree that provides hope that the end of exile is here, that the new Genesis has come in Jesus, that God's people are restored. And that actually brings us to the second variation, uh, the surprising variation of seeing who gets included in the people of God under this new King Jesus. You see, if in the, in the ancient world, as it, as it is, your family trees like your resume and it shows your significance, your importance, then people would be very selective about what they put in their family tree. You know, just like your resume, you put the good stuff in and leave the bad stuff out. And that's especially the case if you're claiming to be some sort of 
king. So apparently Herod the Great, who was king of Judea at the time that Jesus was born, he purged his family history to strengthen his claim on the throne, to make himself look better. Because if you're claiming to be royalty, you want an impeccable family tree, don't you? And so that makes it really surprising who Matthew actually includes here. Uh, There's women in the genealogy, which might seem fine for us, but ancient genealogies don't generally include women. They're not considered important in tracing someone's line or their importance in a patriarchal society like first century Israel. But Matthew includes five women in Jesus' genealogy. And more surprising is actually which women he includes. So if you're Matthew and you're you're aiming to bolster the claim that Jesus is the long-awaited King of Israel, which women do you think you would include? You'd include the matriarchs, wouldn't you? Abraham's wife, Sarah, uh, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, um, Rachel and Leah, the mothers of these 12 sons of, uh, of Jacob, uh, the heads of the tribes of Israel. You'd include them, wouldn't you? But you don't see those, na- those names anywhere here. Instead, we get Tamar, we get Rahab, we get Ruth, and Bathsheba and Mary. And the important question then to ask is, why these women? What do we know about them? Well, at least three of them were Gentiles. Uh, Tamar, Rahab and Ruth, they're outsiders to God's chosen people. Uh, Bathsheba here, she doesn't actually get mentioned by name, does she? You've got to know your Old Testament. Uh, She's just named as the wife of Uriah. Uh, Uriah was a Hittite, he wasn't an Israelite and so even if she was born as an Israelite, by marriage she probably counts as a Gentile. She's not one of God's people either. So they're Gentiles but actually on top of that, these women that get mentioned are involved in some of the most sordid, sinful incidents in the Bible. In Genesis 38, Tamar dresses up as a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law Judah and fall pregnant by him. Through the twins that she gives birth to, Perez and Zerah in verse 3, she gets included in Jesus' family line. You may remember Rahab's name from the book of Joshua. She's a Canaanite sex worker in the city of Jericho. And Bathsheba doesn't even get mentioned by name. Why is that? Partly, I think, to remind us that she's a Gentile. She's married to a Hittite, not an Israelite. But it also reminds us of how she became David's wife, doesn't it? Because it's not just the women who are terrible sinners in Israel. It's even the greatest king of Israel. Matthew calls Bathsheba... Uriah's wife to remind us, I think, that David slept with her when she was married to someone else, to his friend and his loyal soldier, Uriah. And then David has him murdered to cover it up. Matthew's not having to go at Bathsheba, he's reminding us of the sin of King David 
this great king that Israelites look up to. And these are the kind of people that Matthew includes in Jesus' family tree. It's foreigners and idolaters and sexual sinners with the wicked kings of Israel. Why would he do that, do you think? Why would Matthew include all of the grotty parts of Jesus' family history rather than just the highlights? For one, I think the fact that God achieves his plan through such broken and sinful people must mean that all glory goes to him, doesn't it? Uh, Kate, my wife and I often joke that, you know, given our families, it's surprising that we turned out so normal. But the family of Jesus is a textbook case of family dysfunction. If you think your family is messed up, they have nothing on Jesus' family. And so all glory goes to God that he can work through this messed up bunch of people to bring salvation and redemption and renewal. All glory goes to him. As well as that, though, I think Matthew's showing us the kind of people that are brought into the kingdom of God by Jesus. It's foreigners and former idolaters and people guilty of terrible sin. In Jesus' own day, the religious leaders are scandalised by the sorts of people he hangs out with. Tax collectors, prostitutes, notorious sinners. But these are exactly the sort of people that make up the royal family of Israel, aren't they? And more than that, they're exactly the kind of people that Jesus calls into his new eternal kingdom. And so this family tree stands here, I think, right at the start of Matthew's Gospel as an invitation to us to join this family. So if you ever think your sin is too great for God to deal with you, You just need to look at the list of names here. This is an invitation to come into a family where every name is dripping with evidence of God's grace to sinners like you and me. If you're ever tempted to think you are too broken for God to use you, then this list of names is for you. It's an invitation to join this family where God's worked through sin and brokenness to bring about the salvation of the world. If you're ever tempted to think you're all good on your own, that you've got it covered, you've only sinned a little bit, so you're probably in God's good books. This list is for you. Because even the greatest names on this list, the heroes of Israel they need the grace of Jesus Christ too. This list is an invitation to the greatest privilege of the Gospel. It's an invitation to join the family of God. It's a family of misfits, so we'll all fit in perfectly, won't we? That's what this genealogy is here for. It is a genealogy of God's grace and we are sinners in need of grace. 
And so no matter what you've done, if you repent and you put your trust in Jesus, then his family, this family, the family of God becomes your family too. No matter how broken you are, you have a home in this family with us because of Jesus. Because of Jesus the King, that great King, the promised King from the line of David, the one who is the offspring of Abraham. He's the one who brings the the promises of blessing to Abraham to fulfilment. He's the one who's going to rule as the son of David over God's people forever. He's the one who's come to bring us back from exile, from under the judgment of God to reconciliation, to rest, to new creation. If you've put your trust in Jesus, then you've joined this family. All of those privileges are yours in Christ. How about we pray and we thank him for that? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, that in every part of it you speak and you reveal yourself and you shape and change us. Father, thanks that you even do it in the bits of the Bible we find hard or confusing or are tempted to skip over. We thank you that through this genealogy you help us get a bigger picture of Jesus. Thanks that you help us see he's the fulfilment of all of your promises to Abraham, to David, through the prophets, that in him you are forgiving sin and renewing creation. Father, thanks that you offer to include us in all of that by bringing us into your family in Jesus. Thank you that we can be forgiven and reconciled and accepted and renewed. And we pray that you would give us the gift of faith through which we're included in your family. Help us to rejoice in the privilege of being included in this family of yours. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.